All right, so we are in the last week of Exodus. We're covering Exodus 35 through 40, although we kind of began to do that last week. But we're in the last week of Exodus. I loved the book of Exodus. I love going through the book of Exodus with you guys. Something I'm surprised by, I don't know why I'm surprised by it, because it's such a monumental book in the Bible, but I, I heard constant stories from different people in our congregation of how Exodus has shaped them and changed them and, and caused them to, to be more godly, to be God's people. And so it's been a, a great series. I've loved it. A quick recap for us uh, before we get into uh, the last part of Exodus today is the story of Exodus, if you're not sure what it is, it's the story of God's people Israel being rescued out of Egypt because they were enslaved in Egypt, uh, rescued by God out of Egypt, and that God doesn't just leave it at that, he takes them and he forms a people. He gives them law and he gives them case law and he gives them all sorts of ways of what it means to live with the family name, and the family name being Yahweh, being God himself. What does it mean to be God's people. And so we saw that God also began to give plans for how to worship. And a couple weeks ago, we saw even in the midst of that, they rebel. They choose to worship in their own way. And yet what we're going to see today in 35 through 40, God is still merciful. He allows them to build and set up uh, these, these things in order to worship him well. And so last week specifically, we looked at the tabernacle. If you don't know what the tabernacle is, it's kind of this rectangular area that has a tent inside of it, and this was a place of worship. But what we learned last week was it was not just how God, not just like a building that God made for worship, it was a building represented how God wants, his intent for creation is actually to dwell with it. And so that the tabernacle was a microcosm of creation. It was a small picture of what God originally wanted to do in creation, and it was a small picture of how God is restoring more and more and more throughout time. And so we don't have time to go over all of it, but that's what we looked at last week. Now, there's kind of a key pillar to tabernacle that, or, or, or even some call it like a twin pillar to to tabernacle that's important for us to talk about. We've touched on it in some ways here, but we're going to spend a significant amount of time on it today, and that is the priesthood. We're going to look at what is the priesthood in the tabernacle and how does that apply to today. If you're anything like me, you grew up hearing all kinds of different ideas about priests, whether you grew up Catholic and you saw priests in the Catholic church, or uh, maybe you're even part of a different faith, uh, and you see priests in your faith expressed in some way, or even there's different parts of Christianity that have, have priests as well. And so even when I begin to say priesthood, you're already going, okay, what, what is a priest? What does that look like? And so here's just a basic definition of a priest, and then we'll get into it more as we go. The basic definition is this. The priests in ancient Israel were the people who worked in the tabernacle, okay? They were the people who worked in the tabernacle. It's not like they had a cubicle in there, but they would uh, help orchestrate the worship of God in the tabernacle, okay? So here's what we're going to do with the priesthood today. We're going to look at the priesthood. We're going to see how, what did it look like in ancient Israel specifically? What did the priesthood look like? Then what we're going to see is that the priesthood actually tells us something fundamental about our humanity, something fundamental about who we are as humans, 
And not only does the priesthood tell us that, but it tells us uh, some major things about what it means for us as Christians. How do we live out our identity as Christians? And then there's one major component of the priesthood that I don't think points to us, but it points to God. And so we're going to talk about that as well. So uh, let's get into it. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 40, verse 12. And so throughout Exodus 35 through 40, what you see is... They had gotten the plans of how to build the tabernacle and start the priesthood, and then they do it. It's almost verbatim the same. It's like, here's how to do it, and that's how we did it. And so in Exodus chapter 40, the last chapter of Exodus, we begin to see God uh, consecrating all these different parts of the tabernacle. And so we're going to read the part about how God consecrates the priest. Verse 12 through through 15 is what we'll read. Then... You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Okay, we'll stop there. So God takes the priests themselves, which was Aaron's family and others, and he said, you guys, I'm going to consecrate you guys. So what does that word consecrate mean? It really just means to set aside, to separate, and in particular, to set aside or separate for God. So the idea is that these priests belong to God in a way that maybe the rest of Israel didn't. And not to say that they were more special than Israel, but that that the work and all of the totality of their lives would be towards God serving him in the tabernacle. Okay, so that's, that's what it means for them to be consecrated. And we saw that it was a perpetual thing. This is not just a, you're this for a little while so you find a new job. This was something they did for the rest of their lives and they did generation after generation. This was a lifelong thing and something that it lasted past their lives. So here's a quick number of things that we see the priests doing in the Old Testament. Their main job was they would make sacrifices in the tabernacle. They would help make sacrifices. They would guide the people of Israel in what sacrifices were needed. And even the high priest once a year would go into the most holy place and he would uh, do a sacrifice to atone for all the people. And so sacrifice was a big part of their daily work as priests. Another thing that they would do is they would help determine the will of God. They had this thing called Umen and Thumen, and I've read way too much about these two rocks or whatever they might have been uh, that the priest carried on them, and I'm not really sure. I, it could be anywhere from kind of like rolling dice to figure out what God means to like a magic eight ball situation. I don't know quite what it was, but they would help determine the will of God. They would bless the people. It was kind of like their job to bless the people at times in certain ways. They would give instructions about the law of God, about the Torah uh, that we've been reading through. Uh, they would uh, even apply the law to specific situations that, that maybe weren't in the Torah yet. And, and then they also led the people in praise of God. They would sing. They would play instruments. They would do all sorts of things. You particularly see this during David's reign where he sets up, uh, aside Levites and priests to learn instruments in order to praise God well. So... All that, that's what the priests look like. How does that connect to something fundamental about our humanity? It just sounds like a bunch of like religious stuff. It just sounds like every other religion that's ever had priests or uh, you know, at least similar in certain ways. And so how does that connect to something fundamental about our humanity? 
Well, if you remember last week, the tabernacle, like we already talked about, was a microcosm of creation. And, and, and it is to remind us of what God's intent in creation was. It's to remind us of what God did when he originally created the world before sin came in and, and, and ruined that and broke that. And so if the tabernacle itself, where the priests work, is a microcosm of creation, I do think the priests themselves are a microcosm of what humanity is supposed to look like. And so here's what I think the priests show us, something fundamental about all humanity, not just some of humanity, not just Christians. I think the priests show us something fundamental to all of humanity, whether you're a Christian or an atheist, and it's that all of humanity were created to be worshipers. All of humanity was created to worship. It's something fundamental to who we are. It's something we are supposed to be doing. We are supposed to worship. You probably, if you're here, you're you're not a believer, thank you for being here, but you're probably already pushing back and saying, what is this craziness? But I love this quote that I'm going to read. It's from the late author David Foster Wallace. He does this in a famous commencement speech that he did called This is Water. It's worth worth watching uh, if you want to hear a good commencement speech. And he's talking through different perspectives he has on the world. And here's the thing about David Foster Wallace. I I don't think he was a believer. It's a fun little journey to try to figure out what he believes spiritually, especially towards the end of his life. But but when he gave this speech, I don't think he was trying to make a Christian point or a theological point. I think he was just grasping onto something that he observed in the world and wanted these students who were graduating to know about. So let's look at this quote. It's a long quote, but it's good, uh, and I think compelling, and so we're going to read the whole thing. Here's what he says. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess, or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before, you fi- before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. I love this quote, because here you have a guy who I don't, believe, I don't think believed in Jesus as Lord, who, who sees something fundamental in humanity that the priesthood even shows us, that we as humans are worshipers. Now, where I disagree and push back with him, I actually do think it's sin to worship the wrong things. 
I think these good things that God gives us are not to be worshipped, but to be received just as gifts. And so when we worship those things, I think we are living into sinfulness. We're living into brokenness. So the priests show us that something fundamental to our humanity is that we're worshipers, but not just that. They show us something fundamental to our humanity is that we were created for worship of Yahweh. We were created for worship of God. That's why when David Foster Wallace is saying all these things and how they're going to eat them alive, it's because those things are not the God of the universe who we were created to worship. The priesthood shows us that we are worshipers, and not just worshipers, that we should be worshipers of Yahweh, that we were created for worship of Yahweh. I think that the priesthood also, though, connects to our identity as Christians. It connects to what God is doing in us as Christians. Look at how uh, Peter, maybe the most famous disciple of Jesus, connects the priesthood in Exodus to the early church where they didn't have priests. There was priests in, in Judaism, but there wasn't priests in the early church. Look at how he connects it in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He's saying this to the early church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter connects the priesthood to Christians and saying, now, instead of just having a few of our people set apart and consecrated to God, now every person who believes is a priest. Every person who believes is part of the nation of priests. And so there's some, there, there are some fundamental things about the priesthood that I still think connect to our faith today, connect to how we live out mission with God. God is on a mission to increase his dwelling place here on earth and to restore all things, and he wants us as priests to be a part of that. And so there's three general characteristics, there's maybe more, but three general characteristics that I want us to look at today that I think are about the priesthood, but also about us, Christians, a nation of priests, okay? So let's look at them. The first one is this. The, the priests themselves were distinct and holy, set apart. We as Christians are supposed to be distinct, holy, set apart. We're supposed to be. This is fundamental to who we are as Christians. I grew up hearing a lot of the King James Version, right? It sounds like Shakespeare. It's hard to read when you're a kid, and you're like, Do I, am I an atheist? I don't know. Like, and so, but one of the phrases in this First Peter verse that I love, that I don't know if it's a great translation, but I love it because it kind of gets across what's going on here, is it calls God's people a peculiar people. A peculiar people. Right, so anytime I was doing something weird growing up, my dad would be like, hey, that's all right, we're a peculiar people, right? Like he, and I was like, I don't think that's the right application, dad. And, uh, 
But the priests had this unique vocation among the people that required them to live differently and be set apart in a unique way in order to serve Yahweh. And so are we. We have a vocation as priests, and we are to be distinct and holy. So not only are we tabernacles like we learned last week, that we each are tabernacles where the Holy Spirit, God, dwells in us, but we are priests who are called in our very essence to be holy ourselves, to be set apart ourselves, to be distinct and different from the world around us ourselves. This is a huge part of our identity, I believe, as Christians. The church got weird with this. and Throughout church history, they've gotten weird with this. I've seen both uh, sides of the spectrum growing up. I think the church got weird with this because they added all these rules that made Christians kind of uh, distinct and set apart, but morally, they looked just like anybody in America. Like, they didn't look morally distinct. They just did weird things. Like, I wasn't allowed to go to dances at all. Like, that was like, that led to debauchery or something. I don't know. And I wasn't allowed to play with playing cards. Like, that led to poker, which led to gambling, which led to death. Like, there was just, there, there was all these things. Like, I, and maybe you're like, maybe, maybe those are good rules for some, let me, let me tell you something that I still haven't gotten over. When I was six, 16, I wasn't allowed to go see Pirates of the Caribbean, the first movie, the first one. I was 16. I legally could go on my own, but because we're chasing this holiness, uh, it got weird in my family, and it was like, hey, you're 16. You can shave, but you can't go see Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Like, I think the Disney ride itself is like a worse experience than the movie. Sorry. <laughs> but we've gotten weird with it. We got weird with it. We said, here's all these things you have to do. We got legalistic with it. We said, this is what it means to be set apart and holy. And we totally missed the point. And then because of that, now a lot of people that are part of the church, they're like, why even be holy? Some of you right now, I'm saying that well, this is a distinct part of our identity and you're offended. You're going, no, that's the old time religion. No, I'm not telling you not to play cards. I'm telling you to be holy as God is holy. We're to be distinct and set apart. This is fundamental to our identity in Christ. I want this to be fundamental to our identity as Redemption Church. We are to be set apart, distinct, and holy, and it's going to look peculiar sometimes. We're essentially supposed to be God on earth. Right? We're supposed to act like God on earth. We have the Holy Spirit in us, so we have, and we have God's word to see what that looks like. That's what we're supposed to look like. I want to give some examples of what I think holiness could look like in the people of God, and I hesitate in doing this because these examples, you guys could run with them and make them legalistic things. Or in 100 years from now, maybe these aren't even holiness in that culture and time and place. I don't know. But I want to give some examples of, of some ways that I think Holiness looks like how we can be set apart and distinct from our culture. Here, here's one. We are the people who befriend the people no one else befriends. And I, I mean that. I know this is a fun example I like to use, and we're like, yeah, let's be friends with everyone, like Barney taught us, right? Like, and, and the reason I'm saying it mockingly right now is because 
So many of us just don't want to be friends with people, so we just don't be friends with them for vapid, vain, stupid reasons. We just don't want to be friends with someone, so we don't. A people set apart by God are friends with people that they don't want to be friends with, truly friends. A people set apart by God, they don't know the office gossip. Maybe they do know what's going on in the office because you can't help but hear certain things, but they're not part of the office gossip. A people holy and set apart, they're generous in ways that don't make sense. Not just generous, generous in ways that don't make sense to the world. We don't have to be foolish with our money, but we, we are called to being sacrificial with our money, which doesn't make sense to people. And for that matter, just even a holy and set-apart people, they just deal with their money differently than the world does. We've got Black Friday coming up. I don't want to guilt trip anyone. I've been to Black Friday. I'll keep going to Black Friday. But the way we deal with consumerism in this country, it, well, as a society, we just, it's horrible. So Christians, I think, should be holy and set-apart when it comes to things like consumerism and what we buy, and how we own things. Again, don't, don't get crazy with it. Christians who are holy and set apart, they forgive in astonishing ways. Every once in a while, there's this, you know, there will be a trial or some situation where there will be video footage of, of, of a Christian getting up and forgiving someone that murdered their family or did some horrible crimes against them. And in a, in a cool way, this gets spread virally, usually through the media and through other Christians. They're, they're excited to see kind of forgiveness of Christ lived out. But it's not long before other media members and other Christians go, well, they shouldn't have forgiven because of this and this and this and this and this and this. But if we're holy and set apart, the way we forgive is going to look different than how it seems it should to us. The way Jesus forgives us doesn't make sense. The way we forgive will not make sense sometimes. Here's, here's one that I think is distinct and holy and peculiar to the world, especially in this city, is Christians choose a life of gathering and fellowship and worship together over a life filled with extracurricular activities. Listen, extracurricular activities are great. You should be doing them. But if they take precedent, over gathering with the people of God and worshiping God, I think something's off there. Certainly there are times when we don't have to be here on Sunday mornings. I'm not trying to make it like you gotta be here or else. I know I shamed you earlier with the get here on time thing, but this, this is peculiar to our culture that on a Sunday morning we'd wake up early and gather together to worship God instead of sleep in or go hike or, or do whatever. This is what a holy and distinct people look like. We look like a life that's full of God's character, so full of virtue. Church, we are called to be holy and distinct. Holiness is so different than the culture around us, and yet it's so ordinary and full of love. Church, let's hear that calling to be holy and live it out. The second thing I think the priests show us is this. What they had was a perpetual like, lifetime of the priesthood. So their, their lives perpetually were focused 
on worship. And so for us as Christians, I think what we have to realize is that all of our lives are worship. All of our lives are worship of God. Okay, we have the shirts, you've seen them. All of life is all for Jesus. What we are trying to say there is every aspect of your life can be used to worship God. Not how you sin, but every aspect of your life can be used to worship God. Worship doesn't just happen right now when we sing. Worship doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings. Worship doesn't just happen when you're doing your quiet time. And although all those things are important, worship happens in the totality of our lives. We can worship God in how we do the laundry. I don't know how, but we can worship God in how we do the laundry. We can worship God in how we sit on the floor and play with our kids. We can worship God in in how we self-care, to use a very popular term right now. We can worship God in, in how we eat. We can worship God in how we have conversations. And it's not by just wearing a cross or a WWJD bracelet in all those scenarios. There are ways that we can worship God in those scenarios by understanding that we carry the holiness of God inside of us. And so to worship God means to image him, to reflect him to the world, to obey him, to love him in all that we do. We can worship him in all those areas by centering our worship, not on all the different idols, but on him. So that the reason that maybe even we're doing the laundry or how we do the laundry is not centered on some idol we have about cleanliness or idol we have about looking good, but it's centered on God and who he is. Church, we are worshipers always. That's what the priesthood shows us, not just in this room. Okay, let's keep going. The third way the priests show us our identity in Christ is this. The priests, one of their main jobs was sacrifice all the time. And so I think for us as Christians, our worship is rooted in sacrifice. Our worship is rooted in sacrifice. Okay, so you're going, Anthony, do I have to go kill goats and lambs? I thought last week you said I don't have to do that anymore. Like, I'm not saying that. But let's just look at 1 Peter 2 and let's see how sacrifice is linked to the early church and, and, and what we're called to do. We're back in 1 Peter 2, but we're up a little bit higher. We're, we're in verses 4 and 5. And look at our calling here. This is first talking about Jesus. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So part of our life as Christians is to offer spiritual sacrifices, just like the priests used to give physical sacrifices. What does that mean? Romans, I think, 12.1 helps flesh this out for us. This is Paul. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we're not called to go make sacrifices of all these animals anymore. 
but we're called to have our lives be sacrifices. That doesn't mean you and me have to go lay up on some altar or jump in some volcano in order to appease God. That means in the every day-to-day, our life looks like a sacrifice. Our worship is rooted in sacrifice. So what does that mean? How does that look? Here's, here's two major things we have to know in order to have lives rooted in sacrifice. We basically have to remember the sacrifice of Christ and relive the sacrifice of Christ. Okay, this is part of why we do communion each week. It is taking time to remember that Jesus' body was broken, that his blood was shed to atone for our sins. And so for our lives to be rooted in sacrifice, they first have to be rooted in the idea that Jesus made the sacrifice to atone for our sins. That Jesus did all the work we need in order to be saved. And we need to center our lives on that. We need to center our thoughts on that. But we don't just stay there. We don't just stay there going, okay, I'm going to think about that a lot. I'm going to praise God for that a lot. I'm going to thank God for that a lot. Although that's part of it. We don't just stay there. What we begin to then do to have our worship rooted in sacrifice is we begin to live out that sacrifice in our daily lives. There's a book called The J-Curve. We've promoted it before by Paul Miller. Read this book because it helps flesh this idea out. Paul Miller has probably influenced me and Vince more than anyone in recent memory. And it's this idea that we can live lives that retell the story of Christ. This is, this is what lives of worship rooted in the sacrifice of Christ look like. I want to give you some examples of, 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 of how that works and how we can be living sacrifices. Just a few examples. Maybe they relate too much to me. Maybe they relate to you. I don't know. But sometimes living a life of worship rooted in sacrifice looks like being quiet even though you really want to say something. Sometimes it looks like helping someone move. Sometimes it looks like listening to advice from godly believers around you, even though you're like, that just doesn't seem like something I want to do. I think it sometimes looks like chasing contentment in God instead of a thousand other things that you could find contentment or happiness or pleasure in is that sometimes in the moment choosing to chase contentment in God instead of all that is what a life rooted in sacrifice looks like. I think sometimes it's choosing to be gentle to someone when their sin doesn't deserve gentleness. Do you hear that? When their, when their sin doesn't deserve gentleness, but choosing to be gentle anyways. I think a lot of times it just looks like obeying God's word. That there's something you want to do, God's word's pretty clear on it, and you're like, ah, I'm okay, I'm going to live God's word. I think that's often what living a life of worship rooted in sacrifice looks like. Look, most of those things, you could probably relate, most of those things make you feel dead inside in some way. Especially that first one I, I read where it's being quiet even though you want to really say something. There are all sorts of situations where I'm like, I'm going to say this. I'm going to, I'm going to tell, it's true, right? I can say it because it's true. And I, I have to go, no, I need to die to self. I feel a death inside. The death that I'm feeling inside in those moments 
is the death of a life centered on myself. Our worship needs to be rooted in sacrifice. Remembering Jesus' sacrifice and then reliving Jesus' sacrifice. Church, if this began to be our church on the whole, if this began to be how we live, if this began to be normative, I can't imagine how this city would be like just like wrecked in a good way. I can't imagine how our kids would be loved. I can't imagine how our spouses would feel loved. I can't imagine how our friends would feel loved. I can't imagine how our coworkers would feel loved if we began to live a life of worship rooted in sacrifice. This is what we're called to. This is part of our calling. So the priests show us so many things. They show us that uh, fundamental to our humanity is we're worshipers of Yahweh. But the priesthood for us as Christians also shows us that we're to be holy, that we're worshipers all the time, and that we should be worshipers rooted in sacrifice. But there's an aspect of the priesthood that I think in some ways we can reflect and be a part of, but there's this part of the priesthood I think really points more to who God is and what he's about. And it's this. It's this idea of priests as mediators. See, basically the, the priests worked as like middlemen. They uh, regulated the relationship of Israel with God. They helped Israel deal with their sin to have forgiveness before God. They helped Israel understand God's holiness. They helped under Israel understand God's word. They would approach the holiness of God so the people of Israel wouldn't have to. The high priest, once a year, in fact, he would go into the most holy place, make a sacrifice to atone for all the sins of Israel. They were mediators. The priests were mediators. They were middlemen. They, 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 the relationship of God with Israel was mediated through these priests. I think that the priesthood, having these mediators, is pointing to Jesus, who's a better mediator. A better, a better mediator than any one of us could be or any priest could be. Look at what Hebrews chapter 8 says about Jesus as our high priest. It begins to talk about Jesus as a high priest in all, this, in all these ways, in all these things that he does. And it's a little bit confusing and we don't have time to go into all of it, but I still wanted to read these six verses from the beginning of chapter 8 of Hebrews to help us see how the priesthood points to Jesus, our high priest. It says this, now the point and what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, which sidebar, could be, it should be translated tabernacle, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus is a mediator better than any high priest. 
better than any one of us trying to live out our identity as priests. Jesus can go straight to the Father on our behalf. The, the priest would try to tell of the holiness of God to the people of God. Jesus brought the holiness of God to us. And not only that, Jesus gives us his holiness. The priest would make these sacrifices all the time in order to atone for sins. Jesus became the last sacrifice needed to atone for our sins. His blood is far more powerful than any lamb's blood. The priest, if they didn't do everything right, if they didn't wear the right bells, wear the right clothes, do the right things, they would just drop dead. That's how serious, serious the holiness of God is when it meets the sinfulness of man. Jesus being holy and perfect still takes on the effects of sin, which is death, but he can't stay dead because he is truly holy. He comes back to life in order to give us life. Jesus is better than any high priest. In Exodus so far, we, we've learned so much about God, and it can feel daunting, and can feel heavy, right? We learn these things about God, and we see the implications to God's people, and we go, uh-oh, right? Like, look at all these things about God that, that we've learned so far, that he hears the cries of his people. He's personal. He hates injustice. He's a rescuer and a redeemer. He's holy and set apart. And he's to be worshipped above all. And then what we learn is that the people of God, Israel, and us as the people of God are called to be a display people, to display who God is to the world so that people of all nations would turn and worship Yahweh, the God of all. And you go, how is this possible? How can I do that? How can I display that, right? I, I can't. I don't know if I can ever display that. And what we see in Scripture is Jesus, our high priest, says the way to do that is continuously coming to me, the better mediator of a better covenant. Look at what Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16 says about Jesus and what he offers us as the high priest. This is why I think Jesus represents mediation better than any, any priest could. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The God of Exodus is this amazing, fascinatingly huge God who calls his people to a high standard of holiness. But apart from Christ, that holiness is impossible. So let us be a church that goes after that standard of holiness, but only rooted in Christ only rooted in him, only where we recognize how weak we are at doing any one of these things and run to him and ask him to supply us strength 
in our time of need. And Jesus, our high priest, he's gonna give us grace and he's gonna give us mercy. Jesus, our high priest, is a priest who can make us holy even though we're not holy. Jesus is a high priest who can make us worshipers all the time even though we don't wanna worship him all the time. Jesus, our high priest, can make us worshipers rooted in sacrifice even though we never wanna sacrifice. Church, let's be that people. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for being our high priest. God, what an amazing thing. As I read Exodus, I'm stirred to praise of you. All these things that we kind of gloss over or we go, oh, that's the old-timey religion or something like that, God, like they actually help me to believe in you more. I get to see that this, the things that you've done through Christ are the things that you've been planning all along. God, help us to be a people that see that. Help us to be a people that sees our identity in its similarities to the priesthood. Help us to be holy. God, we need you for that. We are not holy without you. God, we love you and we need you deeply. Thank you for dwelling in us. Thank you for the Exodus story. Thank you that it's our story. Amen.